Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme. It's been claimed that more than one in three Irish millennials now sports a tattoo. Recently we learned that the European Union plans to ban certain body inks on health grounds. This regulation has sent tattoo practitioners and their clients into a spin as they rush to find alternative and safer dyes. However, I'm aware of one man in particular who might have wished that the entire culture of tattooing was never conceived and that body inks had never been invented. In 1829, a 21-year-old Dubliner named James F. O'Connell found himself shipwrecked on the remote Pacific island of Pompeii. His whaling ship had recently sunk and having been adrift for days in a small rowing boat, he was mightily relieved to make landfall on that small island. Clambering ashore, he wrote that he was greeted by islanders brandishing weapons and throwing stones. He feared for his life, having been regaled with tales of cannibalism during his whaling apprenticeship. Years later, O'Connell would tell about this moment and how he talked his way out of trouble by dancing an Irish jig for the assembled throng. He claimed the tune Gary Owen sprang into his head and he danced as if his life depended on the performance. The ploy worked and O'Connell was accepted into the local tribe. However, before he could be fully integrated, it was necessary that he became tattooed, as was the local tradition. He graphically describes days of torture when he was imprisoned in a small hut and forcibly subjected to full face and body tattooing. The designs were applied using thorns and ground charcoal. Having survived the initiation ritual, O'Connell was treated as one of their own by the native people. He was even married to a daughter of the tribal chief and managed to leave some Irish DNA in that remote place. But Pompeii was never going to be a lifetime home for O'Connell. His passage back to the Western world came courtesy of a passing ship and in the mid-1930s O'Connell found himself in New York City where he stood out as different from his fellow men. At that time, Americans had rarely seen tattoos, and with O'Connell's full facial marking, he quickly gained notice. Nowadays, he is fated by many as the first to bring tattoos to the Western world. Taking advantage of his notoriety, in 1836, O'Connell published his memoir, The Life and Adventures of James F. O'Connell, The Tattooed Man. And for the following two decades until his death, he performed in circus and freak show circuits across the United States. He showed off his tattoos, entertained audiences with his story and sold his books. O'Connell tells of the reaction of people in the street to his appearance and how young girls fainted when they laid eyes on him. Pregnant women were told not to look upon him for fear that their unborn children would be blemished with marks similar to his. By 1842, O'Connell was one of the main attractions at Barnum's American Museum in New York City. The museum drew in up to half a million visitors a year and O'Connell, the tattooed Irishman, was top of the bill when it came to novel live acts. 
He also built on his story by dancing the famous Irish jig that saved his life years earlier. Through tattoos and Irish dancing, a new showman had come of age. Though James F. O'Connell is famous within the tattooed fraternity, the subject of many articles and academic papers, in his native Dublin he is largely unknown. He was born in Thomas Street on November 10, 1808. As a young lad, petty misdemeanours saw him transported to a penal colony in the New World. From then on, his was a life of high adventure, the sort of stuff more usually found in the pages of boys' own novels. His autobiography regales us with daredevil escapades amongst the Pacific Islands, leading up to his eventual sojourn on Pompeii. By the time James F. O'Connell died at the age of 46, it's estimated that upwards of 20 million people had seen him as a result of his years on the show circuit. He asked that a jig be danced on his grave to the tune of Gary Owen as part of his funeral service. And out of respect, his wish was granted. O'Connell remained a showman to the end of his days. And if you ever find yourself on the Pacific island of Pompeii, make sure to visit a bar called The Tattooed Irishman and ask for their signature cocktail named in his honour. What greater glory could any man ask for? Bacchus' sons, be not dismayed Come join me, every jovial blade Come booze and sing and lend us aid And help me with the chorus Instead of spa, we drink brown ale And pay the reckoning on the nail No man for that shall go to jail From Gary Owen to glory I was coming through Houston Station on a wet, miserable Wednesday afternoon when a man sitting on one of the seats near the coffee shops called me. He was a man I knew and we hadn't seen each other in more than a year. The conversation travelled down sidings and then, just before we parted, he said, Lal McKenna was your aunt, wasn't she? She was, I said. I remember her from when I was a boy, the man said. I remember her walking out with, and he named a man I'd never heard of. They made a lovely couple. I'd see them down the line or on the square. I could never understand why they didn't stay together. She never married, and he never married either. He was mad about her. What a shame. On the train, I thought about my Aunt Lal, my father's sister. The quiet woman who was a constant fixture in the kitchen of her sister and brother-in-law's shop. The woman whose life was a continuum of service to others. The woman who raised one family and then another without ever having a child of her own. When Lal was eight, her mother died and she and her three brothers and younger sister were taken into care by their grandmother. A few years later, the children returned to live with their father, a railway man, in Athai. By then he had remarried, and the five children looked forward to a more stable life together, in their new home in the railway cottage at the edge of town. 
Within a short time, their stepmother died, leaving Lal to look after her siblings. She was 13 years old. The year was 1915. She was responsible for cooking and cleaning and running the house for her father and her siblings, who ranged in age from 14 to 7. Her teenage years were spent in looking after others, getting them through school and out into the world. She continued to live with and look after her father until his death in 1948. I thought of the story the man had told me in the station and I wondered whether Lal had been so trapped in the service of others that she had in some way become a woman of no great expectations. And I thought of her in her twenties and thirties, walking out with this unnamed man who worked in the local foundry. Did she long for children of her own, or was she already tired of the notion of motherhood? Was that the reason they never married? If so, there was to be an irony in that fact. When Lal's father died, she moved in with her sister Kathleen and Kathleen's husband Andy. Andy ran a thriving grocery shop, tea rooms and a boarding house. And Lal became carer for Andy and Kathleen's six children. Cook for the half dozen lodgers and waitress in the tea rooms. After her sister's death in 1963, she continued to work and live over the shop until finally it was sold. Only then, in the last years of her life, did she find a house and a home of her own. She died at the age of 71. To me, visiting the house where she worked in my childhood and teens, she was my father's older sister a woman of indeterminate age, sometimes smiling, sometimes bad-tempered, a woman who provided hearty dinners and teas, a woman who offered advice now and then, a woman who worried about her siblings, a woman who never spoke of her own ambitions and dreams. What I'd never saw was the woman I'd heard about on the station platform, the young woman who walked out with a young man who loved her. A young woman who might have had another life, a time of her own, in a home of her own, with or without children. Instead, she was Lal McKenna, childminder, cook, waitress, daughter, sister, shadow. Lal, a woman without even a name of her own, for her given name, one I never heard spoken until the day of her funeral, was Ellen. I salute you, Ellen. Too late, but I salute you anyway.
the routine of homework, the early mornings, the cold nights, they'd become one long trudge. We needed to be rescued from the midweek nadir that was bringing us three girls down. We were still in our school uniforms, weary from the daily grind and the cold weather, when my mother rallied us and told us to get our coats. We're going on a picnic, she said. It was getting late, just gone five o'clock, but we left our bags full of school books and thoughts of homework behind us and we piled into the car, thrilled and expectant, willing our redoubtable mother to make the day count. We left my father behind to mind the dog, keep the fire going and hold the fort. He waved us off from the door, shaking his head at the lunacy of it all and Mama drove the feet onwards, determined to mark the day for us. The sun was sinking below the knockmill downs, but we didn't care. She had put a picnic into a basket for us. We had stocks to survive, biscuits, crisps, egg sandwiches and tea in flasks. She had bought a small bottle of Guinness for herself. She drove doggedly along the cliff road, breaking at the top to turn inland, and we headed towards Old Parish, the middle earth of West Waterford. We watched eagerly from the passenger seats, wiping the windows to see out through the mist. Even though the light was nearly gone, we peered through the fog, watching, waiting as if for some miraculous intervention. We'll find a good place to stop and then we'll have our picnic, Mama said, as she turned down another narrow, winding road. It grew darker and wetter. But we continued to scan the windswept wilderness, searching for a good place, and we wove our way up the narrow roads of Old Parish. The rain had begun to fall in earnest and the roads became sleek with wet. Streams ran down the hills into dark ditches. After a while, it seemed as if we were going in circles, travelling like the lost children of Eve. I think I'm lost, my mother said, a hint of panic in her voice as she changed gears and accelerated up a hill. The country had become clogged with muck. We all became anxious then. The bushes outside swayed violently in the wind. The sole farmer we passed looked sodden, bracing himself against the elements as he tried to close a recalcitrant gate. We drove down more boreens and turned onto minor roads, lost in the maze. We glimpsed homesteads as we travelled on. An empty cowshed threw a giant shadow across our bows. We pitied the animals trying to shelter out of the rain and the howling wind, but still we peppered with excitement and we willed our mother on. We were going to have a picnic come hell or high water. What about here? I suggested. The road's too narrow, maybe up beyond that bend. We all looked ahead, willing the road to widen, straining to catch a glimpse of that elusive, perfect spot. In the end, my mother pulled into a ditch and turned off the engine. She left the wipers going and the rhythmic swish across the windscreen kept us mesmerised. It was like a metronome beating out the pulse of that long ago time in the company of our mother. This will do. I think I know where we are. Isn't that the chapel up there? What do you think? She asked us. Relieved and eager to begin, we all agreed it was as good a place as any. 
She pulled the picnic basket into the middle of the car. She unscrewed the flask and poured out the tea. She watched our faces and like a magician the steam rose up around her. We munched on the egg sandwiches she'd made, giggling all the while. It was while pouring her stout into a little tumbler that we noticed her stopping, the bottle clicking uncontrollably against the glass and her shoulders twitching, quivering. We realised quickly what was wrong. Our mother was laughing. She looked up at us, unable to talk with the hysterics, doubling over in a fit of stitches. We're mad, she said finally, just about getting the words out. The sense of hilarity was contagious, and anyone who passed us that stormy night, they might have wondered what we were all laughing at. Soon we were finished. We packed away our leftovers. My mother started the car and we drove home to my father and the heat of the fire, tumbling in home to tell him about her adventures. I can still see him looking across at her and that connection of understanding between them. I especially remember the smile of amusement they exchanged. I had adored the band Hollis Flowers since their song Don't Go had taken over the Irish airwaves. My homework journal and bedroom walls were plastered in posters of the band and as well as shop-bought records, I had stacks of bootleg cassettes and video recordings. I joined their fan club and talked about them non-stop to anyone who would listen. I was so obsessed with them that one winter, screeching cat-like sounds reverberated through my house as I attempted to teach myself the tin whistle just so I could play along with the Hot House Flowers version of She the Wamoy. To my family's relief, I quickly realised my musical prowess was confined to turning on and off the stereo. My dream was to interview the band for my school magazine. But how? I was a teenager without any media contacts. This was long before social media would allow easy interaction between musicians and their fans. But I was a voracious reader of newspapers which is how I found out that the Hot House Flowers were to play at the official launch of Dublin as the European City of Culture, 1991, at the National Concert Hall. I decided to write to the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Michael Donnelly, to ask if I, as the band's biggest fan, could attend along with the invited councillors. I checked the post every morning. Nothing. But I was young and determined. On the morning of the event, myself and my friend Sorsha headed in early to town, where celebrations were underway to mark the designation, including the release of 1,991 balloons into the sky at St Stephen's Green. It was a Saturday morning, so there was a large crowd looking on as the Lord Mayor made his way in style from the Mansion House to the Concert Hall in the ornate Lord Mayor's carriage. We followed him on foot, then stood awkwardly outside the railings, hoping to spot one of the band members going in. The Taoiseach Charles Hawhey arrived, as did several European cultural ministers. 
This was a proper official do, so it was starting to look unlikely we would get anywhere near the band. But when one of the city councillors came out to have a smoke, we got chatting and quizzed him on what was going on. What's it like in there, we asked. Have the hothouse flowers played yet? Did you see them? Maybe he was impressed with our devotion to the band, or maybe he just felt sorry for us as we shivered in the cold. But right away he said, Come on, I'll get you in. There are loads of spare seats. He ushered us inside, then pointed at the side of the stage. See over there, he said. When the event is over, you go through that door and that's where the band will be. Best of luck. We were in. The salute to Dublin ceremony was beautiful and finished with a wonderful performance of Christchurch Bells and the Older We Get by Hothouse Flowers. We then brazenly followed our friendly councillor's instructions and found ourselves in a backstage area chatting to the band's bass player, Peter O'Toole. He loved our story of how we managed to get in to see them. He gave me the number of the place they rehearsed and told me to give him a ring to organise a day and a time for the interview. It was that easy. And so a few weeks later, we turned up at the factory rehearsal studio near the Grand Canal. When we got inside, the group's saxophone player, Leo Barnes, was the only member of the band there. And even though he knew nothing about it, he kindly agreed to be interviewed by me. The others arrived a little later. We were quite starstruck. Sorsha was hardly able to speak. But over tea and biscuits, they put us at ease and answered all my questions with good humour and patience. Fiekna mentioned his newborn twins were keeping him up at night yet his tiredness didn't show. Leo said he didn't have many good memories of his school days, which he spent in an orphanage in Kilkenny, although he did enjoy playing hurling. Peter told me he left school early and got a job delivering bread, which left him the afternoon free to hang around with his friends in St Stephen's Green. Before we finished, Lee mentioned that the original name for the band had been Goose Stomp 75. We said we'd open a book on a certain page, he explained. The page was 75 and it had the word Goose Stomp written on it. The world was nearly saved from all those flower-related headlines, blossoming and wilting and so on. Then they brought us into their studio and played us two new songs from their next album, a world exclusive. They also had fun looking through my scrapbook of newspaper cuttings about them that I had collated over the previous three years. It felt like a dream to me. They were at that time considered the biggest band in Ireland after U2. And yet they gave us, a couple of ordinary teenagers, two hours out of their busy schedule for my school magazine article, as if we were well-known journalists with Hot Press or NME. A few days after the City of Cultural launch, I received a letter from the Lord Mayor, apologetically explaining that the event wasn't open to the public. I had learned a valuable lesson. If you want something badly enough, don't wait for an official invitation. Every year, for All-Ireland Poetry Day, Poetry Ireland chooses a campaign theme. And for 2019, they named it Truth or Dare. Luckily for me, I had a poem titled And They All Lived Happily, and it fitted the truth category. 
my poem was chosen to be published as one of eight truth theme poems along eight dare poems. It would be printed on poetry cards to be sent out around the country and also on A3 posters to be placed by Erin Road Erin on the dart trains in Dublin. When I received the news that my poem had been selected by Poetry Ireland, it was a real dance-around-the-kitchen moment for me. My son messaged friends who work in Dublin to keep an eye out for my poem. That March, one day, they came through with a photograph of an A3 poster, black paper with white font in a silver frame, placed beside one of the doors on a dart. My name, my poem. The poem, and they all lived happily, was about our sons growing up and the soft lies I told them instead of harsh truths, like telling them that the family's dog had been sent to live on a farm. My poem was about parenting and being parented. People who I once knew as children were seeing my poem and it was resonating with them as they are parents now. There was something circular in the life experiences and I was weepy with emotion. I had the photographs, but since we live in Donegal, I hadn't actually seen the poster on a dart train myself. Then, one Sunday morning, my husband had to go to Belfast for a few hours, and I went for the trip. When we were about to head home, Lawrence says, Look, Dublin isn't that far down the motorway. Will we go see if we can find your poem in the dart? And so, we headed off to Dublin on an escapade. As we approached Dublin, the question was, where are we going to go? We pulled into Malahide with the idea of taking the train into town. We bought two tickets and stood on the platform, and we waited. But there were no Malahide trains that day due to maintenance. Back to the car, and we headed to Hoth. We arrived at the station, and there was a crowd waiting. Only then I realised that Hoth is the end of the line and that was the better place for our mission. We waited until a train pulled in. We have no knowledge of the dirt, if you're allowed to walk through from carriage to carriage or even how often it runs because, of course, we and Donegal don't have trains. So the two of us went into each carriage together in case the train would suddenly take off. We ran in and out, in and out, and eventually saw a Poetry Ireland poster. My heart stopped, but it was an Emily Dickinson poem. No harm to Emily, but I was disappointed. That was the only Poetry Ireland poster on the first train. A second train arrived to the other track. We ran in and out, in and out of each carriage. I was afraid CCTV cameras would be watching us. There weren't any posters on that train. The two trains were sitting on the tracks with no sign of them moving. Both of us realised that we hadn't eaten since breakfast, so we headed off into Hoth Village for fish and chips. I started to get anxious. There were 16 poems travelling on the darts out there somewhere. Would we find mine? How many train carriages would we need to run through? Were we being foolish? And as soon as we gave up, And after we left Hoth, would my poem 
be on the next start that pulled into the station. We went back to the station. The tracks were empty, but a train was arriving. We waited until it emptied and then started running again, in and out of each carriage, in and out. No sign of posters. We came to the very last carriage, and there, on the wall, above two seats, was a framed poetry poster. My poem and all its glory. So gorgeous. And they all lived happily. Denise Blake. Photos taken, text sent. We headed back up the road to Donegal, more than happily, as the evening light fell. So here's the poem. And they all lived happily. All bad guys died in the end. My kiss did make bruises better. It was right to put lost teeth under a pillow. And that time when you didn't find money, there really was a tooth fairy holiday. I told the truth about castor oil, as you have grown big and strong. Broccoli, porridge, the last bit on your plate, have been the making of you. I really believed your granny would get better. I didn't think your eyes would possibly stick that way, but it was the thing to say. That report card wasn't worth all my giving out. I knew your teacher had a pick against you. But how to admit that to a ten-year-old? We weren't made of money. I did need a break. Our dog did go to live on a farm for a while. When I said, I'll think about it, I did. You do know I was right about that girl. Honestly, most of the time, I told you the truth. Boom, ba 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 This is a letter to Angela. Now, I don't know if that's actually your name. And to be honest, I know very little about you. I met you once in Newry in the early 80s. When I was 10, you probably don't remember. We'd gone to a sale of work at the Good Shepherd Convent on the Armagh Road. And we bought a wee footstool that was red and black for down. I still have it. In fact, maybe you made it. You had freckles either side of your nose and you had short hair and I did realise that you were from somewhere far away. Kerry, my mum said, but I don't think she knew. She said you'd had a baby and that they were looking after you in Yuri. But you looked worried and I knew you were sad because when you spoke... Your brow furrowed with lines. But you sat with me while the grown-ups talked and drank tea and there was this overpowering smell of clean washing. But I kind of passed no remarks on that. I don't even remember what we talked about. 
But whatever it was, I never forgot you. I grew up and left the town and never went back to the convent again. I had my own family. But as I learned more about what happened in places like that, I often wondered about you and if anyone might have come looking for you. Once somebody told me that they thought you'd gone to live with a family out near the border. But look, Angela, I'm not a letter writer. I mean, I used to write letters every day to a girlfriend when I was at school because every day her brother came with one for me from her. I wrote letters to my wife when she was a student living in the Rue de Crecy in Lyon. But I don't think I even ever wrote a letter home. I do love reading letters, though. And some people have a real gift for it. St Paul wasn't bad at the letter writing. I mean, he wrote some crackers to the Corinthians. I always loved that bit about, even though you might be very eloquent and speak with the tongues of angels, if you don't have love, you're like a big noisy cymbal clanging in the wind. And I don't know if you've seen the Shawshank Redemption. You know the bit at the end when Red trudges that long dusty road to the hill and finds the parcel under the tree with the letter left to him by his friend Andy Dufresne. And Andy has written, Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. There's comfort in that. But the difference here is they both knew who they were writing to. And I really don't know you, and I don't know why I'm writing. I suppose I felt uncomfortable as a child that you were unhappy and now as an adult, I suspect I know why. But I'm writing in hope. You might be 60 now and you will have lived a life. I hope that you found happiness and I hope you found a family who loved you. That's all. On this morning's programme we heard Body Language by Joe Carney No Great Expectations by John McKenna Old Parish Picnic by Catherine Foley By Invitation Only by Jackie Lynham Searching for Poems on the Dart by Denise Blake and Letter to Angela by John Toll The music was Gary Owen by the 97th Regimental String Band Waltz number 15 in A-flat major by Brahms, played by Emmanuel de Pax and Miho Kawashima on piano. Three Little Maids from School by Gilbert and Sullivan, sung by Valerie Masterson, Peggy Ann Jones and Pauline Wales, with the Royal Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by Royston Nash. I Can See Clearly Now by The Hothouse Flowers. And People Get Ready by The House Martins. Jackie Lynham's script was first broadcast in 2020. We rebroadcast it this morning in memory of Leo Barnes of the Hothouse Flowers, whose death was announced this week. Er yeshte goreva anam. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey, and the producer is Sarah Binchy. For more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. 
For more from us, you can follow the program on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.